According to legend, at the turn of the 19th century, a Kentucky hunter named John Hutchins found a black bear and shot. He failed to kill the bear and it ran, wounded, while Hutchins gave chase until it led him to the entrance of a cave. Some say the bear chased Hutchins, who, either way, is credited with the modern discovery of a cave system that sprawls for nearly 400 documented miles, so large that it is yet to be fully mapped, and may go on for up to a thousand miles. On this episode of America's National Parks, the world's largest cave system, Mammoth Cave. On the ceilings and walls of Mammoth, one can find thousands of names, written in smoke from a time when such a thing was encouraged. One of the oldest and most prolific names, sometimes written backward, is simply Stephen. Stephen Bishop, Mammoth's most famous explorer, would take his candle to the ceiling and trace his name, sometimes in reverse due to the mirror he was looking in to avoid the wax dripping in his eyes. In 1838, the 17-year-old bishop was brought to explore and lead expeditions into Mammoth by the cave's new owner, Franklin Gorin, a lawyer from nearby Glasgow, Kentucky, who purchased the property, seeing the cave's potential as a public attraction. Previously, the cave had been used as a saltpeter mine during the War of 1812, when slaves mined valuable potassium nitrate, a primary ingredient in gunpowder. Bishop quickly got to work guiding tourists and exploring the depths of the cave and creating its first map. This is what Gordon had to say about Bishop. He was handsome, good-humored, intelligent, the most complete of guides, the presiding genius of this territory. He has occupied himself so frequently in exploring the various passages of the cavern that there is now no living being who knows it so well. The discoveries made here, said Gordon, have been the result of his courage, intelligence, and untiring zeal. He's extremely attentive and polite, particularly so to the ladies, and he runs over what he has to say with such ease and readiness, and mingles his statement of facts with such lofty language that all classes, male and female, listen with respect, and involuntarily smile at his remark. His business as a guide brought him so often in contact with the intellectual and scientific that he has become acquainted with every geological specimen in the cave. Stephen wore a chocolate-colored slouch hat, a jacket for warmth and striped trousers. Over his shoulder, on a strap, swung a canister of lamp oil. In one hand, he carried a basket of provisions for the longer trips, fried chicken, apples, biscuits, and often a bottle of white lightning for refreshment. In the other hand, he carried an oil lantern, a tin dish holding oil and a wick with a small heat shield held above the flame by wires. A visitor described Stephen Bishop's perfectly chiseled features, his keen, dark eye and glossy hair and mustache. He's the model of a guide, the visitor said, quick, daring, enthusiastic, preserving, and with a lively appreciation of the wonders he shows and a degree of intelligence unusual in one of his class. I think no one can travel under his guidance without being interested in the man and associating him in memory with the realm over which he is chief ruler. 
but a ruler of Mammoth, Bishop was not. Quite the opposite. Stephen Bishop, like the saltpeter miners before him, was an enslaved black man. Each week on the America's National Parks podcast, we plan to focus on a specific story or two behind a National Park Service unit. But for this, our first episode, the epic tale of Mammoth Cave was too juicy to pass up. It's really the story of America, warts and all. We begin, as most National Park histories do, with the first people to call America home. The hunter John Hutchins may be credited with Mammoth Cave's modern discovery, but Stephen Bishop quickly found that man had been deep within the cave long before him. In the summer of his first year in the cave, Stephen began to probe the obscure passageways. In what was then known as the main cave, behind an enormous rock called the giant's coffin, he squeezed into a small room and down through a crack into a maze of passages beneath. Here he found the fragments of a burned cane torch and grapevine ties left by the natives who had explored Mammoth long before him. Nearly 100 years later, in 1935, Civilian Conservation Corps worker Grover Campbell and Lyman Cutliffe were exploring a new passageway. They climbed a ledge and discovered the unnerving scene of an ancient tragedy. A human head, an arm the only visible parts of a body pinned beneath a six-ton boulder. A digging stick lay nearby. The cause of the boulder's collapse. Its owner had dug too deeply. Like the cane torches found by Stephen Bishop, the 2,300-year-old body had been well-preserved by the cave's steadfast temperature and humidity, and by the salt in the soil. Thousands of ancient artifacts have been found in Mammoth. Gourd bowls, pottery, woven cloth, and a handful of petroglyphs. From 4,000 years until nearly 2,000 years ago, Native Americans explored at least six miles of the cave. Until one day, for reasons unknown, they disappeared. Stephen Bishop and the other slave guides, such as Matterson and Nick Bransford, continued to escort the curious along their choice of two routes. The short route, a six-hour journey, and the long route, a 14-hour journey, took visitors through all the curious formations, rooms, and obscurities Mammoth had to offer. For a nickel, they'd lash a candle to a stick and write your name upon the ceiling. They would journey down Echo River in small boats and entertain tourists with songs and around with the echo of the cave. On one such tour, Bishop's boat full of travelers capsized and all the oil lamps were extinguished. In complete darkness, he led his party through the neck deep water for five hours until Matterson Bransford arrived to save them. 
Madison went by Matt with one T. He was the son of affluent Tennessean Thomas Bransford and a slave woman named Hannah. He began guiding at Mammoth Cave in 1838 and ultimately became the property of his own half-brother after the death of his father. He married a slave girl named Parthena and built a home for her and their four children. As the children grew, however, Matt was powerless to stop his wife's owner from selling first his two daughters and then his youngest son. Many did not view such an act as horrendous, including opponents of slavery. In the 1860s, Matt guided abolitionist John Fowler rustling on a tour. Rustling remarked, I don't suppose you missed these children much. You colored people never do, they say. Matt was quick to inform him differently. Just months before the Civil War ended and slaves were emancipated, Matt used his life savings from cave tour tips to buy back one of his daughters, who was 15 years old and pregnant. Matt remained a mammoth cave guide for the remainder of his life. His eldest son Henry became a guide and then his grandson too, whose name was also Matt, but with two T's. Matt with two T's Bransford decided that after the Civil War, blacks shouldn't just work Mammoth Cave. They should visit it. Black people were still not welcome in most establishments. They were not allowed to be on the same tours with whites or stay in the same hotel. Matt traveled to larger cities to appeal to the African-American community to visit the world-famous cave. He led special tours for them and provided lodging and meals for black visitors with his wife, Zemi, at their home called the Bransford Resort. White visitors had been touring Mammoth for a century, and now, thanks to the younger Matt Bransford, black visitors could share the experience. There are more cave attractions throughout the Midwest than you can shake a stick at, but Mammoth is different. A grand, gloomy, and peculiar place, Bishop called it. Instead of the elaborate configurations of drip formations that you'll find elsewhere, Mammoth is full of gigantic rooms formed by ancient underground rivers that sculpted the sandstone and limestone capped by a shale roof. It's more labyrinths and domes than wedding cakes. As the Industrial Revolution raged on, railways brought more and more visitors to Mammoth. By the 1880s, tens of thousands of yearly visitors were arriving by a rail line built specifically to accomplish that task. The Mammoth Cave Railroad would operate successfully for 50 years, making runs from Glasgow Junction every 25 minutes in the summer. Shortly after the turn of the 20th century, the great national park idea had taken hold. Half a dozen parks had been proclaimed by Congress, including one cave, South Dakota's Wind Cave National Park. Interest in protecting Mammoth in the same fashion began to spring up, but by 1920 a war of economics had broken out in the Kentucky cave country. The Mammoth Cave Estate and dozens of other caves that had been discovered in the area competed for the massive profit in showing tourists the wonders below the earth. 
Colossal Cave, Long Cave, Shorts Cave, Great Onyx Cave, Indian Cave, Salts Cave, and Crystal Cave, all tried to snag motorists bound for the world-famous Mammoth, often by stopping them on the road using ringers dressed as authorities saying that Mammoth was the other direction, or that Mammoth was flooded. An oil man named George Morrison believed that the cave's length extended beyond the surface boundaries of the Mammoth Cave estate. He searched for clues in the cave and above ground until he got word of a sinkhole where kids played in the summer because cool air came up from below. Morrison bought the property and drilled until he found a cave that was revealed to have a direct connection to the rest of Mammoth. He dubbed his site the new entrance to Mammoth Cave and began selling tickets to motorists on their way to the old entrance. The Kentucky Cave Wars were not without casualty. When cave owner Floyd Collins was exploring for a more profitable cave and became lodged underground in 1925, a circus atmosphere developed around his entrapment as the story drew national attention. Thousands of sightseers descended on Cave City, hawkers sold food and souvenirs. Reporters drafted hourly updates for the nation, including aviator Charles Lindbergh, who delivered news reports by air as federal troops were dispatched to keep order. Rescue attempts failed, and Collins died on his 18th day below the surface. Rampant commercialism aside, Kentuckians held a deep pride for the caves at Mammoth, and many initiatives were floated to transition the area into a national park. For 30 years, surveys were taken up, bills were introduced and passed, land was purchased, and finally, in 1941, Mammoth Cave National Park was dedicated. On Memorial Day and Fourth of July weekends, a young Jerry Bransford, the great-great-grandson of Matt Bransford, would ride the half-hour drive from his home in Glasgow to visit Mammoth with his family in the backseat of their 49 Chevy. On those holiday family picnics, Jerry's father, David Bransford Sr., would tell him the history of his family at Mammoth, how the cave is a part of their heritage, even though they still weren't allowed to go inside the hotel for refreshments. The staff, who still knew Jerry's father, would give them ice cream and Cokes at the back door. Post-slavery, the Bransford and other black men were still the preeminent tour guides at Mammoth, famous even. But when the cave became a national park, those guides had to look for new jobs. Many of their homes were forced to be sold to the government. The great act of protecting the underground wonderland turned away the people who knew it best. When Jerry retired, nearly 200 years after the slaves mined the saltpeter for the War of 1812, he began discussions with the National Park Service to return the Bransford family to the park. Jerry Bransford is now a fifth-generation cave guide and a National Park Service ranger. His mission? 
to tell the stories of the great black cave guides who were so instrumental in the discovery and interpretation of Mammoth Cave, so that they should never be forgotten again. That was Abigail Trebu. Today, when Jerry Bransford gives tours, he always notices the names scratched into the walls that were made by his ancestors. He's found 14, including the one that says simply, Matt, 1850. Whenever I see a signature from my kin, I feel awed by what they did, he told the New York Times. But when I see Matt's, it just knocks me down. I don't know how anyone can have their kids taken away and never get them back. Mammoth Cave is one of the most conveniently located national parks, along I-65, just 30 miles outside of Bowling Green, Kentucky. Several different daily cave tours provide visitors with a wide range of sights to see, including the Gothic Avenue tour, where you can see Stephen Bishop's candle-written signature and hundreds more. The more adventurous visitors can climb, crawl, and squeeze through the six-hour wild cave tour seeing places only a small number of humans have visited. Along with the half dozen or so paid cave tours, visitors can experience a wide array of above ground activities, including hiking, biking, kayaking, and horseback riding. There's still a small hotel on site, as well as several primitive campgrounds. Several private campgrounds are just a stone's throw from the park as well. Jerry Bransford still gives cave tours on a seasonal schedule. He swore our three sons in as Mammoth Cave Junior Rangers. He's raising money for a memorial to better honor the many Bransfords and other black cave guides buried at the Simple Cemetery in the park. You can donate at BransfordMemorial.com. We'll provide a link in the show notes, along with a transcript of this episode and other helpful links at NationalParkPodcast.com. This episode of America's National Parks was written and produced by me, Jason Epperson, and narrated by Abigail Trebu. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. The America's National Parks Podcast is a part of the RV Miles network of web resources for United States travelers. If you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen over at the RV Miles podcast. You can also follow Abigail and I as we travel the country in our converted school bus with our three boys at OurWanderingFamily.com and all over social media. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island From the Redwood Forest To the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me The America's National Parks podcast is a production of Lotus Theatricals, LLC.